From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Dr. Paul Chabot is an American businessman, author, public speaker, former law enforcement officer, adjunct professor, and commander of naval intelligence with the United States Navy Reserve. He formerly served as a White House senior policy advisor in law enforcement for President George W. Bush and was a presidential management fellow. Paul also served in the U.S. State Department Office of Inspector General and U.S. Attorney's Office. He was a Republican candidate for California's 31st Congressional District in both 2014 and 2016. He then moved with his family to McKinney, Texas, and in May 2017, he launched Conservative Move, a company that helps conservative residents of California sell their homes and relocate to red states. He also launched Military Vet Move and Law Enforcement Move, helping veterans and police relocate. On top of all that, Paul is a combat veteran, my longtime personal friend, and many years ago we served together in the Joint Special Operations Task Force in Iraq. From childhood struggles with drug addiction to policy advisor in the White House, and from special operations in Iraq to running for Congress, these are Paul Chabot's battlefields. Hey, Paul, thanks so much for being on the show. You and I have been friends for a long time. I guess it's it's 15 years now, so I know you pretty well. But for our listeners out there, I'd really like to start at the beginning. Tell us who Paul Chabot is, and in particular, how you got into the military and into law enforcement, because you've done them both. Yeah. First off, great to be with you. Thanks for all the work you're doing and continue to do out of retirement. Um, you know, so I, I, I credit my careers to a bunch of accidental choices and decisions that were supplemented by really good mentors that came in at the right moment to keep me on the right path. Um, so I'm, I'm 49. I've got four kids, uh, three teenagers, and those three are all girls. So uh, pray for me every night, my friend. And as we work through this as a dad, you know, the, the paradigm shift, you know, happens that, you know, we join the military largely before we have kids because we love our country. And then as we're in, we may have kids and we're doing it for them. And then when we're out, we're like, wow, they might have to end up going forward someday uh, and taking our place. And hopefully we've modeled for them uh, the way to go forward. So you know, it's interesting. My my uh, my trajectory was never really into law enforcement or military. And I'll tell you why, because when I was a kid, I made a bunch of bad mistakes and I openly talk about this. I've been talking about it for decades. So um, when I was a young kid, my parents got divorced. I ran away from home. I began using drugs. And at the age of 12, I went through a drug rehab program. Now, back then I was using marijuana and alcohol. But if it was in today's times, God knows what it would be, methamphetamine, fentanyl, who knows? Um, and so I grew up watching um, the cops take my dad away. And I grew up as a kid, very rebellious. I was a skater. I had long hair. I had three earrings in my left ear. I was not the epitome of somebody that you could imagine uh, going forward into military, let alone law enforcement. But uh, I'll tell you what happened. When I, uh, we lost our house as kids. And my mom moved us up from a, a, a California city where I was a skater kid growing up 
up to a high desert town called Hesperia. And this was in the late 80s. So you got to think about this. Here I am a kid, skateboarding, half pipes, doing all that fun stuff, to moving to the middle of the desert, literally on a dirt road with absolutely nothing to do. No air conditioning, no heating. I mean, it was, it was a real life-changing experience. But for me, what was good was I was taken out of the environment of being away from a lot of negative folks that were around my life at another city. So at that time in my life, I was you know, a young teenager and I was in high school and I was extremely bored because there was nothing to do, right? You go to school and then you walk home a mile and a half and 110 degree uh, heat on dirt roads and not much to do. So I would do whatever I could because I was bored. There was an after school program called um, Law Enforcement ROP and the ROP stood for Regional Occupational I think program, what it was like a after school program to learn about being in law enforcement. And I took this after school class, not because I wanted to become a cop, but because of two reasons. One, there's really nothing else to do. And number two, uh, I genuinely wanted to learn to, how to get around the cops because I grew up not liking them. So I'm sitting in this after school class and uh, Charlie, the, the, the biggest guy you've ever seen on the planet. Uh, his name was Mike Bomar. He was a retired sergeant, San Bernardino County. He was so big and he was retired teaching this after school class to all us kids. He said he was so big that when he was on patrol, they had to modify his crown Vic by taking out the driver's seat and placing it in the back. That's how big this guy was. So here I am. I'm not a tall guy to begin with, but back then as a, you know, I was, I don't know, five foot two or three at the time, still growing with this huge sergeant. And uh, man, he was intimidating, but he was soft spoken and he saw that I was rough around the edges and he took me under his wing. And from that day forward, I built a, a great friend, a mentor, somebody who really taught me about service and got me involved in the Explorer program at the age of 16 to join a local law enforcement program. And that's how I got my foot in the door. Uh, into public service, but also, quite honestly, in turning my life around. So how did that help you with the other issues you were dealing with? So you yeah. you were in the the rope, the ROP, you were doing, yeah. you were hanging out with this enormous sergeant, but at the same yeah. time, your conditions hadn't changed much, right? You're still tough growing up. So how yeah. did this program help elevate you out of that? Yep. So, you know, kids growing up and what the research shows today is, you know, everybody needs role models. Uh, when you look at single family households, kids that get in trouble, you know, through my law enforcement career, when I was a state parole board commissioner, you look at the kids that get in trouble, many of them grow up in broken homes and they really need mentors. So for me, all these police officers, the, the retired Sergeant Mike Bomar, he was a mentor. He got me involved in this uh, Explorer program. And uh, for those of you that don't know about it, it's like Boy Scouts for law enforcement. And if you got a son or daughter and they're interested in a career at all in military law enforcement, Call up your local PD, local sheriffs, ask them about the Explorer program. And basically you wear a uniform and uh, you go through an academy, but it's for kids and you learn about order and discipline and report writing. And once you go through this training, uh, you then get to ride shotgun with law enforcement responding to actual calls for service. And what I realized through Sergeant Mike Bomar and all these other police officers were that they are people just like you and me. They just wear a uniform. And uh, it was a remarkable turning experience for me. But I will say this, that because of my 
previous experience and the things that I did that got me in trouble, not just with drugs, but breaking into homes and other things. Interestingly, I think that somewhat made me um, not not naive and and able to understand criminal uh, activities and the mentality. And it was also, I think, um, one of those times in your life where you got a fork in the road and you can go one or two ways. And the kids that I grew up with, they were all going to juvenile hall, getting arrested. Or you take this other path with positive peers, the other kids that are around you in the Explorer program. And there is an old saying out there. You really are only as successful as the people you associate yourself with. And uh, from that moment forward, it was a complete alteration of my life. I did five years in the Explorer program from 16 until 21, uh, then became a reserve deputy sheriff out in California, put myself through the three different levels, level three, level two, level one, one being the highest. I did four or five or 600 hours of the FTO program, which is the field training officer program in a patrol car. And at that time, I was working out of San Bernardino, out of their headquarters. If you've never heard of San Bernardino, my friends, go Google that. It used to be one of the greatest cities in America, labeled that 1970s as the all-American city. Uh, when I was patrolling there, it was one of the poorest, highest crime-ridden cities in all of America. It became a bankrupt city uh, shortly after that. But it was also a great training ground, Charlie. I mean, to go from um, the experiences to be able to work in a high uh, criminal city, but to see what happens, to go to calls for service, uh, to watch the kids, the gang members, the drugs, the crime. But also from all that, your law enforcement folks really have a good understanding about policy implications about how to turn things around. And so I did that for a number of years. I worked in narcotics, uh, put myself through college, got an offer to go work at the White House. And then I worked on anti-drug trafficking programs in the Office of National Drug Control Policy. Now, I used to tell folks, if you ever want to know what Office of National Drug Control Policy is, there was a movie with Michael Douglas in it. It's about 20 years old now called Traffic. Excellent movie. Talks to you about this infrastructure system we have in this country that targets drug cartels and the resources and the high-intensity drug trafficking area programs. And, you know, that was a remarkable time for me to work in the White House with the FBI, with the DEA. But I want to tell you that um, I applied to be an FBI agent when I was in grad school, and I had already been a deputy sheriff reserve. I was working full time at USC as a public safety officer, and uh, the FBI rejected me simply because I had used marijuana more than 10 times. And so, you know, the, I, I put this out there now because, you know, we all make mistakes in our lives. And, and back then that was a crushing moment for me because I had always thought I had redeemed myself and done good. Mm -hmm. And, um, but at the same time, within weeks later is when I was accepted as a presidential management fellow to go work in the white house. And the great part about that is, um, just kind of let, letting God be in control. You know, we don't always know what doors are going to open or close. Everything in life does happen for a reason, but Charlie, had I, had I not been rejected by the FBI at that time, um, I wouldn't have been on the path to the military, which, and I can tell you about that in a few moments, but if you're in the FBI, you cannot join the military. It's one of the few federal agencies that will not allow you to join the reserves. The DEA will, but the FBI uh, will not. So I'll shut up for a few minutes and, and uh, see if you got any clarifying questions for me before I continue rambling on. I would be quite happy to hear you ramble, Paul. That was a fascinating story, but we kind of jumped ahead a little bit. I think there's a lot to unpack in between sure. the time that, that you were in the Explorers program 
and the time that you joined the military, you brought up some really interesting things, your time at the White House, which I remember us talking about when we were in Iraq together. But I'd, I'd like to go back a little bit and talk to, you, talk to you about your experiences as a reserve deputy sheriff. Can you explain to our audience how that works? Because until I started trying for the program myself, I'd never heard of it. And I didn't realize what they did. Yeah. And Charlie, I'm going to tell you a t-shirt, uh, t-shirt design that we came up with. Uh, I think it was in the mid nineties. And I highly encourage you to get this made because this really symbolizes the reserve police officer. Um, on the back of a white t-shirt, there's a dark alley and, and there's a few words and it says uh, the words, basically, you know, talking to anybody who sees it like a citizen, it says you wouldn't go down this dark alley for a million bucks. A police officer does it for a lot less and a reserve does it for free. And I, I mentioned that because, you know, we largely don't get paid or if we do get paid at small stipends, unify, uh, uh, uniform stipends, or maybe special assignments, but we're not doing it for the money. And most folks in law enforcement clearly don't do it for the money either. And um, there are a lot of, of life changing moments that happen because our life can be taken at any moment, whether it is in the military, uh, you know, from a, a, a ridiculous mortar round coming in during the, the dust storms in Balad to a random shooter as we're a reserve deputy having to sit at a place for a meal. We never know when these moments are going to come. But what's really important is that we as reserves across this country have to have the same professionalism and response to circumstances. Because when we drive up to calls for service, whether it's a domestic violence, a robbery in progress, the, the citizens don't know the difference between a regular and a reserve. And quite honestly, Charlie, if we're doing it the right way, they really shouldn't. Right. You know, we should be able to respond and, and work together. But going through uh, this experience put me in circumstances that, uh, that have forever uh, changed my life. Because obviously you see a lot of negativity. And, and the bad thing about being in law enforcement is that sometimes you get a little jaded because that's all that you see going from call to call to call. But from this, you also, and as I said earlier, begin to understand why certain societal problems exist and how we can better address those in our Communities, And I think that's why military and law enforcement, the professions and the work we do, we really do bring real life experience, you know, to this. And, um, you know, there are there are hurtful moments, things that you remember, things that you can never second guess. There are exciting moments like my very first uh, foot pursuit. Charlie, I'll, I'll tell, you, tell you 30 seconds about this and uh, a little humiliated about it. But, you know, well, we all have them. Uh, I was working a lot of graveyard shifts and these are, you have to work every shift to get certified, do a lot of different calls for service. And uh, uh, there was a pursuit in an area of, uh, called Muscoy in San Bernardino, unincorporated area, uh, very high crime ridden. The streets don't really run north, south, east, west. Nobody has addresses on their properties. It's hard to tell. Everybody's got a dog on pit bull and a chain link fence. And uh, I, I, this gentleman, I shouldn't say a suspect jumps out of his vehicle and, and runs through a field and it's nighttime. I don't know where the hell I am. It's, it's dark. I can't make anything out. All I know is I'm in Muscoy and, and I'm, I'm trying to chase this guy and I'm in good shape, but I lose, I lose him. And all of a sudden I realized, Charlie, I'm in the middle of a field and it's quiet. 
But then all of a sudden I hear these footsteps and it's starting to get louder and the ground begins to shake and it gets a little bit louder and louder. And you know what? I don't know where my partner is. I mean, we all got kind of broken up and, but I know it's not him and it starts getting louder. It's coming at me like a freight chain of a freight train of footsteps. So I start running away from this thing because I can't see anything. And my flashlight's long gone in the patrol car. And I'm running, running. I hear these footsteps getting louder and louder coming on me. I jump over a fence just in time and I turn around and this horse puts its (laughs) mouth over the fence and just, you know, blurts out at me. And so, you know, that was my first experience of a, of a foot pursuit. But what did that teach me? A, uh, you need to know where you are. You need to know your boundaries. You need to know where your partner is and you need to be ready for the, the unexpected and you got to be ready to go back to the station and have everybody make fun of you uh, for having a horse chase you. You know, so so all you never know what's going to happen uh, in these shifts. You can be sitting at midnight having a cup of coffee at a 7-Eleven. And all of a sudden you get these three tones that come across your walkie talkie, or as we call it, HT for handy talkie, that gives three beeps, right? It's a beep, beep, beep. Well, that means it's an emergency call. All of a sudden, you've gone from a relaxing time sitting with other patrol deputies outside on your car, having a cup of coffee, to all of a sudden, you know, shots fired, suspect down, somebody needs help. And you throw your coffee out and you roll right to that call. You don't think about your life. You just think about getting there and and doing your job. And it was baptism by fire, Charlie, working in San Marino County. It really was. The vehicle pursuits, the, the gangs, the limited resources of what we had. But the camaraderie of working with three or four patrol deputies and a sergeant in an area where you depended upon one another uh, for your lives is something that you never forget. And you build that. You build that in the military, serving together in a unit, active duty, or uh, as, as a patrol deputy, as a reserve deputy. And, and so I, I worked patrol for a number of years, worked narcotics uh, for a number of years, worked on the uh, marijuana task force, worked on one where we would get dropped off in the national forests where the cartels were largely protecting uh, marijuana crops in the national forest throughout Southern California and wearing camouflage gear. And, and you know, what? before you get there, these guys have already left. They hear the helicopters coming, but it's amazing what these cartels build in not just our national forests back then in the nineties and late two thousands, but right now because of marijuana legalization, it's everywhere. It's in Colorado. It's in all our national forests. These cartels dig way down in the mountains. They bring out water, fertilizer, they bring in uh, all these resources, and it, it's, if anything, it's remarkable to what they can do living in the middle of nowhere uh, to, to make an illegal crop that they don't need to necessarily do in Mexico. They can do it right here on our own territory. And we probably missed 99% of, of these cartels. And this was, you know, 15 years ago. Today, it's probably 100 times worse. That's pretty amazing. And do you think that your own experiences it with drugs made you better at the narcotics task force? Haven't had that experience. I think it it, it did, and I think where it had actually a a, a bigger impact for me was um, after I left the White House after six years. I left there in two thousand and five, I believe. Moved back to California, got married, and Governor Schwarzenegger's office called and asked if I would consider being a state parole board commissioner. And I took that job and I first worked on on the youth side, which is kind of a misnomer because in California, the youth are up to the age of 25. And if they were in the youth correctional facility, many of them were there for murder 
uh, but a lot of drug crimes. And for me, sitting across from what we called wards up to the age 25, you read through their phone book st stack size of records and you go back. And what you realize is, and I realized this working in the White House, is that almost all crime is drug related. Almost all people that are arrested test positive for drugs. And if we want to reduce crime in this country, domestic violence, child abuse, human smuggling, weapon smuggling, child exploitation, prostitution, drugs is a cancer and it is an underlying factor in almost everything that we address. And so, yes, for me, having gone through drug rehab, looking at these kids in the youth correctional facility and looking at their history, uh, it was clear that they had a broken home. Uh, abused, and oftentimes lived in areas that were extremely dangerous or shady, where they had no choice in many circumstances to join a gang or get their butt kicked every day. They join a gang for protection, they get hooked on drugs, and then one thing leads to another, and all of a sudden they're a full, straight-on, hardcore criminal, and they're ending up either under the age of 18 in the correctional facility in California or as an adult in the adult system. And yeah, so today, you know, when we fast forward, Charlie, to this year, drug usage today is out of control. It's the highest it's ever been in our recorded history. But there are things that we can do about it. And the military, interestingly, has led the way in drug uh, testing. And so this is a little boring, but it's also fascinating because it's a, it's a huge issue that the military has led the way on. In the 1950s and 60s, the military had a 70 plus percent positive drug use rate because we didn't drug test and it was just what it was. But now that we drug test in the military, the positive drug test rate is less than one half of 1%, which shows us that in society, we've replicated that drug testing program, Charlie, in many of our schools across the country, especially for kids that are involved in extracurricular activities. And it's remarkable. This is something that we can use as a non-punitive measure to keep kids on the right path and to make sure that they are able to enter our service healthy and fit to defend our country or to uh, join law enforcement and join the ranks there to protect our streets. I think that's a great point, Paul. And I was thinking when you were talking about this experience, my own experience is being a company commander in the Republic of Korea in 2000. One of the things that we would do, my company, I'm sure other company commanders did it, is every time someone came back from mid-tour leave, you know you're getting a drug test. You just, everybody's getting it. And what we found is that gave our young soldiers the ability to say no. So when they get That's back right. on the block, they're like, hey, I'd love to smoke a bowl with you, but my jerk company commander is going to get it. I'm not trying to get kicked out of the army and have to repay my $20,000 enlistment bonus. So it gives them a, a reason to do the right thing. And that seems very much like what you're saying. You got a young athlete, maybe doesn't want to try drugs. Maybe they do, but now they have a reason not to. So I think that was a great point. Well, and let me, what you just said is what we would say when we worked in the White House that I learned from two different drug czars, General Barry McCaffrey, who I worked for, who was the youngest four-star retired at the time, did the famous left hook in Iraq, uh, and who I worked for. And I'll tell you, I've never worked for a more um, uh, a dedicated public servant than General Barry McCaffrey, who never slept, who still at his mm. older age would make you run uh, miles with him on the morning <laughs> when you would travel. But I learned from him that the drug testing program, he would say exactly what you just said. What the research shows with schools is that kids can simply say, look, I might like to do that, but I don't want to test positive. I don't want to get kicked right. off 
a soccer team. I don't want to do that. So it gives kids an out, which they need, because today on average, one out of every five high school kids is using. And with uh, with fentanyl, uh, we just had three kids die next door to us, three cities over since December, just from fentanyl. And so it's no longer the experimentation, Charlie, where people would say, well, you know, I experimented with this and that. With fentanyl now, it's it's one pill can kill, which is the DEA yeah. slogan. And so we've lost 100,000 Americans. I mean, if you look at how many we lost in Vietnam, I think it was 59,000 over a number of wars. We're losing that amount almost double in this country every single year just from substance abuse. So what we learn in the military, what we learn in law enforcement, the, the military strategy has really led the way for saving lives. And I don't even think they're aware of it, but we've made that connection uh, from the into the civilian side with, with uh, schools, schools across this country. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing you brought up, the fentanyl issue. When we were younger, I don't remember that being a thing at all. I'd never heard of fentanyl. And you're absolutely right. Back in the day, one could experiment with all manner of drugs and and probably have some bad experiences, but not be immediately fatal like we're seeing right now. And especially when I worked out in Hawaii, I remember seeing news reports and reading maybe in The Economist, I don't remember what it was about how much of what we're consuming in terms of fentanyl is manufactured in China and shipped over and run through the drug cartel. So all of this is connected in a way that's definitely affecting our national security. And I know you keep up with these types of things. So you're tracking that the army is severely short on recruiting right now. Part of that is because the economy and, and other things like that. And part of that is because people like you and me may not be encouraging our own children to go into the military. But part of it is because people are are too drug addicted or they're too fat or they're yep. too mentally disturbed to join the military. It's a huge problem. Yeah. And that's uh, from a patriotic perspective. You know, we love our country and uh, we got to take a step back and we've got to look at the fact that we're we're one of the youngest you know, countries still in the world. Um, and we have adversaries, obviously Russia, but China, you know, the whole paradigm with China is you know, they've been around forever and they have seen quote unquote empires come and go. And the question we as patriots, as fathers, as veterans have to ask ourselves, you know, none of us ever wants a war, obviously. Um, but if, and Odds are, you know, there's going to be one in our lifetime or my kid's lifetime. And who will that be with? But are we capable? Are we capable today uh, as a nation? And do we have the same capabilities? Do we have the same sense of service to country? You know, new polling came out last week showing that Americans are less patriotic, uh, less, less faithful and less into hard work. Well, those are three really important pillars that hold our foundation. And when those begin to erode, we've got to question what we're doing as a country. And can we stand up against a China and a united Russia uh, down the road? We've been watching this in the, 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 the pivot to the Pacific for quite some time. And, you know, maybe 10 years ago, people might have laughed it off, but you really can't, you know, any, anymore. And I'll, I'll tell you why you can't. Uh, if you remember 20 years ago, going into a Walmart when Sam Walton was still alive and you got your little blue basket, there was a sign above that those blue baskets that Sam Walton made sure every store had. And that sign said, we buy American whenever we can, so you can too. 
Those signs have been gone for 20 years. What we buy with this global economy, we are very much connected in many ways. And I think the danger in that is that we tend to think more about um, just economic stability rather than long-term survivability as a country. And I don't have the answer for that, Charlie, but I do know that um, it, if there was something that were to keep me up at night as a father with kids, it is what issues are going to be before them and how will our nation be able to either have the Ronald Reagan peace through strength where we are not messed with or the capabilities to respond Yet, unfortunately, in a nuclear world against a nuclear power, which is nothing that we want to see happen. And so it's a very difficult circumstance, which will play itself out in the years to come politically. I'm sure in the presidential races, the debates. And I just don't know. But we look at TikTok and governments and others pushing away from that platform. But you see so many that are connected to it and, and use it as a lifestyle and an economic driving stream to promote businesses. And if we as a country can't even look at that and push away and be united, how are we going to say no when we walk into Walmart when literally probably 90% of stuff there is made in China, a very adversary that, that, that we know is targeting our country. And so it's not an easy, uh, uh, something to wrap our arms around. And in many ways, it's sad that we're not in the military to, to be able to see what's happening, to be able to continue to be leaders in that. But we can't stay there forever, Charlie. We end up retiring. And the whole point of this is that we leave our nation stronger before we leave. It's like being a human being. You want to come into this world and leave it a little better place. And as patriots, are we doing that collectively? And that's that's the question we should be asking ourselves. I think that's a, a fantastic question, an important question. It's certainly one that I'm asking myself on a regular basis. My oldest daughter's 19. She's at military school. She wants to get into the family business and the business that you and I engaged in for, for so many years. But I worry about it. The, the, the forces that we were fighting, you and I were fighting in Iraq and in Afghanistan and everywhere else, they were capable, but they were nowhere near as capable as China or Russia or whoever we're going to fight next. And they could really reach out and touch us in a way that they couldn't when we, I mean, you and I were dodging plenty of rockets and mortars in Balad, but that's different than a guided Chinese missile coming in and dropping right on top of our trailer or something like that. So, yeah, I worry about that all the time. And I, I see these moves that China's taking. They're being extremely aggressive right now. And the rest of the world's responding to that in a way that's positive to China. Yeah. We I mentioned the last podcast we did. I spent a couple of days down in Honduras not too long ago. And a couple of days after I got back from that, Honduras switched, basically switched sides politically in the China-Taiwan argument, and they rescinded their recognition of Taiwan, which was a big kind of middle finger to the face of the United States doing that. But they kind of cast their lot in with China, and we're seeing that all over the world. We see, I think it was Brazil that's going to start doing their petro transactions in yuan instead of dollars. And meanwhile, we're distracted at home with a bunch of things that probably don't matter quite so much as the potential collapse of the dollar, which is, I think, is what where we're on the road to right now. Yeah, it's like we've almost taken it for granted that we've been the greatest country. We keep telling ourselves that, and I think we have been, uh, and we are right now. How long that lasts is is a question. Uh, historically, again, you know, China's seen empires come and go, and they look at us the same way. Was and and will not be. Uh, aside from China's military strength, it's their Silk Road 
uh, if you will, their connectivity, especially in third world countries or Latin America, Africa, where they are, you know, literally building up and making those countries dependent on them economically to pay back for the roads, the, the bridges and the ports. Uh, if you look at their base uh, in, in Djibouti, I mean, you know, not that a base has to be beautiful, but uh, they built a, a Taj Mahal next to what we have out there. And it's because they have the money and resources. And so they might not need to fire a single bullet uh, to win the war as they see it, to be a dominant force economically. It's that they, if you win economically, you probably win militarily because Russia collapsed, not because a bullet was fired, but because we just outspent them. They couldn't afford their war machine anymore. And will we ever get to that point? Well, if China continues on their road, their Silk Road, their domination with other countries, with fuel, with minerals uh, and the reliance. Uh, yes. And as you saw, and you mentioned it rightly, you know, the dollar, which has always been the standard bearer, uh, when that's no longer uh, the standard bearer of, of currency in the world, that again shows a, a degradation of, of where we are as the leader of the free world. And what I think is even, even more important than that, the st stability of the world has been dependent upon America's strength. Yep. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, you know, from a, you look at uh, you and I study history a lot. When you look at our country, uh, days before Pearl Harbor, polling was showing most of Americans did not want to get involved. They wanted to stay isolated. We knew what was going on. You know, we we knew uh, countries were at war, but we didn't want to get involved. And so it's not unique today that people don't want to necessarily get involved. But when you get hit in the nose, all of a sudden you, you unite as a country and you come together. And I, I genuinely ask myself, you know, 9-11 was our last big come together as, as truly as a country, united yep. politics aside that, but those were for some rogue terrorists that took our own planes and rammed them into the Pentagon and buildings with, with a China uh, and their military technology in the Pacific and their disregard for international uh, laws or boundaries and their island expansion, it's clear, you know, where their trajectory is going. And the tripwire for that could be Taiwan. And I don't know. I mean, we don't have to necessarily, quote unquote, defend Taiwan. But the other side of the coin is, what if we don't? What if we don't have the resources there for Taiwan to be able to defend themselves? And so all eyes kind of on Ukraine in many ways which is fascinating, Charlie, because I would have lost my tail in Vegas to think that Ukraine would still be standing against Russia oh, today. For sure. You know, but but here we are. And so if anything, maybe Ukraine is the uniter uh, uh, for America to look towards again to say, hey, here they are standing up against the giant. Yes, you know, we're helping and Europe's coming together. we got a new member in NATO uh, this week, which is nice to see. Uh, but hey, you know, China's on our back doorstep, and I don't think they respect us right now. And that in itself makes it dangerous. No, they don't. They don't have any respect for us at all. They fly balloons over our country. They yeah. they shoulder our our ships in the Straits of uh, of Taiwan, and like you were talking about with their One Belt One Road initiative and their debt diplomacy, yeah. it's not a secret. They're doing it. They're not embarrassed about it. And other countries are getting rolled up in it. And we're seeing it. They're, they're creeping normalcy just, just cover across the world. Yeah. yeah. And and I so from a manufacturing perspective, you look at our country as well. I mean, that's always sort of been a bread, butter, steel. And the other 
you know, the thing to think about here is, you know, we're going much more into technology. AI is the wave of the future in many circumstances. So, you know, these are questions that that folks well above our pay grade need to analyze to say, what kind of economy will we have 20 years from now? What does that look like on the global stage? And how do we compete? And how do we make sure that the dollar is still strong? So, you know, maybe Europe, you know, you see somewhat of, of a renaissance there, right? Like five years ago, well, heck, just last year. I mean, these folks really weren't putting a lot into their military. No. Uh, they were largely de- just dependent on us. And now you see them really bolstering up. But as you and I know, Charlie, you can't build up overnight. It's going to no. take them 10 plus years. And at the same time, you've got China with amazing technology, stealing a lot of our stuff, replicating it. Uh, with some of an economic, you know, base. Now, I don't know if China's economy is truly as strong as they say it is. We see open source imaging of of huge cities that they've built, which are ghost towns. Nobody's moved into them yet. Uh, We we don't really know how strong their economy is, but we do know uh, that their rhetoric is extremely strong. We do know that. And I was thinking when you were talking about Ukraine a few minutes ago, Paul, you're absolutely right. I did not think, and I don't think many people did, if they're honest, think that Ukraine was going to turn out the way it had so far. It's it's fascinating. And I kind of wonder if you think, like I thought, that it was kind of refreshing to see someone willing to be able to stand up for their own country and want it more than we did compared to our experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan. What did you think about that? You know, I looked at, at him and what I, what I saw uh, was history repeating itself from a sense of patriotism and standing up as our founders did against the king, right? So yeah, we had our Boston Tea Party and uh, we were never counted on uh, to win. We, we really shouldn't have uh, just based on manpower, technology, training, uh, but we fought differently. And we had something different about the, the, the freedoms and the values of what we were going for. And it's the same thing playing itself out. It's a really important lesson uh, that you know, historians already know it's already taught in the military history, but it's different to pay people to go to fight who really don't want to fight when you're fighting against people who largely aren't getting paid, who are doing it for their own country, their children, their wives. Mm-hmm. How, do, how do you pay somebody for that? They're going to do it regardless. Whereas people who are get paid who don't want to be there aren't going to be in the fight as much. And we That's see right. that on the Russian front. You saw the generals having to go to the front lines. You saw in the first few months, I think five. Russian generals got killed, which was unprecedented, but they had no choice. They had to go to the front, motivate their troops, but it opened up Ukraine uh, to take them out. And and now here we are almost at a stalemate. Now, look, not that I will ever disagree with Russia, but as you know, part of the strength and understanding our adversaries is the paradigm. Why is Russia doing this? Russia has a genuine threat looking at how close Moscow is to the proximity of Europe. They've lost their satellites. They wanted a buffer. There's only certain areas that they could see multiple tanks coming in to flood the zone into Moscow historically. So in their mind, they're trying to build a buffer. But what they fail to understand is we still are not the evil empire, folks. It's it's you all. I mean, we're not asking for a battle or for a fight. We're asking for our freedoms and to be left alone. So Russia, uh, I, I think, is at the precipice of 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 really an, an implosion here. And then the question is, when that happens, if that happens, what then happens to Russia? We were worried 
uh, when the Cold War fell about watching all their nuclear capabilities and who's going to watch after all their their silos and their subs. Um, I, I don't think we have the same exact sense of that. But one of two things is going to happen here with Russia in their mind. Either they're going to they're going to either win or lose because there is no negotiation. Ukraine is not going to give up anything. And we've already said Russia's got to completely withdraw from territory for us to even have peace negotiations. So the line is drawn and Ukraine is holding that line really well. And I'm glad to see European European allies out there providing uh, support to them. For sure. That's very reassuring and inspiring to me as a former military officer, I'm sure to you as well. And I think that's a great segue into talking about your military experiences, Paul. So can you talk to us about why you joined the military and the kind of things you did while you were in? Sure. So, you know, most of my family uh, on my uh, mother's side, uh, they were all World War II Marines. And I grew up uh, when my parents were together visiting them in, in uh, Pennsylvania. They all fought World War II. And they came back. And when I was little, they would always give me remembrance of, of, of things that they had brought home. And I still have them. I've got a, an, an eagle. Uh, I've got these really neat postcards. And I always respected and appreciated what they had been through. But I also watched them grow up. Uh, and they all worked in the Pittsburgh steel mills. They all came home from war. They went to work. But the Pittsburgh steel mills, that was the foundation of our country, of putting steel out to support our country's war efforts. So they left the battlefields came back and helped to then we had this huge renaissance in this country of building this infrastructure of US steel all around that not just help help US build great cities like New York and Boston and Chicago and LA but cities around the world and so for me it was always something i i admired and respected and then when i was in the white house i knew i couldn't leave my job necessarily full time and there was a DEA agent who worked there with me named uh, Bill Walker. And uh, he was a, a National Guard, I think, 04 or 05 at the time. And he said, hey, there's a Navy um, direct commissioning officer program uh, where you can go through Naval Intel School for a few years on your weekends and join. And so it was him and General Barry McCaffrey. So it was two Army folks who talked me into going into the, into the, the, the Navy. <laughs> but these two Army uh, veterans were remarkable people. I've talked a little bit about General Barry McCaffrey, who's still alive today, just remarkable. Uh, but my my good friend, Bill Walker, he ended up uh, becoming a three-star, retiring. But before he retired, he was in charge of the entire National Guard in D.C. Whenever there was an inauguration, he was in charge of it. He did so well at that that he was asked by both uh, Pelosi and McCarthy to be the uh, sergeant at arms for the entire Capitol. So wow. he was like the, the top dog, right? So, and, and I look back and, and I see pictures of him. He just retired, by the way, working for a consulting firm, uh, you know, doing good. But these were two remarkable people in my lives that led me onto a path into military service. And I loved it. I did just about 21 years, assignments uh, and, and a mobilization. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, it's obviously there's 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 tremendous benefits to joining the military, but the the education that you get, and I'm not talking about using your GI Bill, I'm talking about the real life experiences. And, and Charlie, as you know, in in our in our world serving in the military, it transitioned into a, a true joint environment where you really yeah. learned how to work with other branches and 
you know, before I went out uh, uh, to join you in Iraq, from a Navy perspective, we were all kind of plucked out of our individual units. This wasn't something the Navy ever thought was going to be in their realm. But all of a sudden, you know, they had to get more people out there for the surge. They figured, hey, we are going to help fill billets. Instead of mobilizing an entire unit, they just plucked us out, sent us to a three-week Army Combat Training Center, Fort Jackson, Columbia, South Carolina, to learn how to drive a Humvee, shoot an M16. But then you deploy, and uh, you're working with every branch of service. I mean, everybody we had out, we had Charlie, we had everybody out there except yeah, for the Coast did. Guard, sure you know? And, yeah. and what an amazing experience that was. But then you come back, and then you go back to your units or your others, and Everything I've done since then, Charlie, and every unit, it was all joint. And it was the best time, you know, of my life, which is why, you know, I think with the exception of the Army Navy game, when we keep losing, I really appreciate the camaraderie <laughs> of, of, of that joint experience. And that really, I think, is the wave of the future. And curious to see how the Space Force uh, works themselves into this as the most babyish of all the branches. That, that's right. And that was absolutely a great experience when we were there in Iraq. Of course, that was kind of a unique thing working for General Crystal and the, the yeah. National Special Operations Task Force. And I was thinking when we were talking, Paul, I, in our task force, as you know, because you were there with me, we weren't allowed to take photos. I mean, that was like that would get you kicked out of the unit. So there was a lot of surreptitious photo taking, but not yeah. not a lot of posed shots. Right. And I've got two pictures of you, which I'll probably try to add the show notes to this. One of us, one of them is us in front of the the Turkish cafe. We're doing a yeah. farewell. It's got everybody lined up there. And you got the Air Force, you got you in the Navy, you got me in the Army, we got uh Uber in the DIA. And <laughs> yeah. I, I love that picture because it's just, and and we of course we had the Brits. We had Andy the Token Brit there with us as right. well. Right. And then the other photo, which is my favorite of all time, is you and Uber and me in a blacked out British C-130 flying back from Basra. Um, you and Uber are looking at the camera. I'm looking down at the floor because I know we're not supposed to be taking pictures, but right. I know this is going to be an awesome shot. So I'm just kind of yeah. looking down for plausible deniability. So, yeah, those are some of the, my my favorite photos from my time downrange, and both and you're in both of them. Oh man, I I, I so much uh, appreciate those experiences and memories with you. I learned a lot. I also learned not to ask the Brits for decaf coffee. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was tea. If you wanted tea to or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. decaf, decaf tea. But it, it was so much fun. You know what's that what I learned about the Brits is that they're so at least my experience, they were so laid back. Yeah. I I was, you know, I thought it was just one of our guys, Ewan, but man, uh, uh I had a chance, Charlie, uh, to uh go somewhere on a on a Puma and I watched them sitting on a milk carton in the middle, you know, kind of rotating between the open doors. Uh, and as flying at night as high as they could to the burn off from the smokestacks, the fire, just kind of laughing. I'm thinking, well, crap, our guys would never do that, you know, but the Brits were just having a, having, they were having a great time. And they, they kind of kept the, the blood pressure down because of their, just how, how they worked. And it was really neat to see that, to have them there because you and I were so rigid in, in what we were directed that right. we, you know, you couldn't take, you know, where there are a lot of things we couldn't. And uh, so it, it was kind of fun because the Brits could care less in many ways. And and so <laughs> the, the sense of humor, the camaraderie, you know, sort of got you through the long nights because there was never a, a day off, 
you know, no, Charlie. Not with that or, unit. Nope. No, it was just, you know, it was the same. I, I, I jokingly remember I would set my clock by chapel and that was it. You know, <laughs> oh yeah, it's chapel day. And that, you know, that was, that, 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 that was it. But man, yeah. But oh, as always, oh, I, it's good I, always to be home. I always counted razors. So every week I would <laughs> rotate out a, a razor blade. Yeah. So, and, and I knew that when I got through an entire bank of, of razor blades, that's this many months or whatever. So that's, yeah, I can empathize with that way of counting. And I'm glad you brought up you and the other token Brit, the one who took yeah, that that's right. that we're that's supposed right. to have. And I remember that mission on the Puma. I never flown on a Puma before. I'm used to Blackhawks. Yeah. So I think that was you and, and Uber and me again. And of course you, yeah. because he got to arrange, arrange that for us. Our, our crew brief getting on that Puma uh, what the the crew chief there for the the Puma the Brits pulled me aside. I was like, "Okay, mate, this is your machine gun." I'm like, wait, yeah. wait, what? He's like, "Yeah, yeah, you'll be fine." And then we take off. I mean, a machine gun's a machine gun. I'm sure I could figure it out, but I I've never been on certainly not on an American helicopter. They're not going to put me on a machine gun as yeah. you know, as a major that's unfamiliar with the aircraft. But that's just yeah. the way they did it, and it was yeah. and it worked. I also remember that the Brits had a alcohol allowance, whereas we had general order number one that was specifically prohibited. So mm-hmm. you and the token Brit got his bottle of the Glen Levitt and a case of Turkish beer every couple of weeks. So he was everybody's <laughs> best friend for sure. So I remember uh, you had got there. I know you had gone, you had been there many times and uh, my memory is not always the best, but you had gotten there another time shortly after I had, or sometime after I'd already been there and relieved somebody else. But uh, it was my first time going on a, on a on a Chinook somewhere, and uh, I'll tell you, I I didn't get it. I didn't get a brief. Um, I forget what it was. Where I, anything like Beijing oil refine? I forget where it was. Maybe, but I'm on there. It's it's a late night flight, uh, which they all were, and all of a sudden out of nowhere. Uh, a gunner opens up with a freaking fifty cal, just go, and I jump out of my seat. I mean, you know, I'm like, what the. You know, it was my first time, first time. And I come back, I'm like, and, and, and then you, it was like, it was like the joke was on me. You're like, oh yeah, whenever they fly, they have these uh, targets and they're just practicing on this one location. And, and, you, and I remember you saying, yeah, I should have told you about that because <laughs> I'm sitting right next to that, that door. I that- remember that. And the reason we were laughing because the same thing happened to me. So I think it was actually <laughs> a, a sea stallion. And because that's the, that's how we, one of the vehicles we had to move us around was a sea stallion helicopter. And yeah, when they get off to a certain altitude, they would test fire the guns in a, yeah. into like a, an area where they knew no one was and it wouldn't hit anybody. But they didn't tell us that. Yeah. So the first time it happened to me, I'm clipped in because there's no seats. I'm clipped in so you don't fly out the ramp. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm being, you know, being a good little soldier, I'm napping out while we're while we're flying. We take off, we're flying, and all of a sudden everybody starts shooting on the helicopter. So I I try to get to my feet with my little M4 because clearly we're about to die, right? Because everyone's mm-hmm. everyone's shooting. And but I'm clipped in, so I fall down, and then all the crew chief are looking at me like, "What do you t- you know, you idiot?" And then everybody stops firing at once. And I was completely confused <laughs> until we landed until they tell me what happened. So yeah, I had yeah. the exact same experience, Paul. Yeah. Cause I, I, you know, I didn't have a headset on. I wasn't no right. one's communicating. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just baggage, you know, I'm just, you know, h- hanging out, but I, I will share one other story with you. Cause to me, it was, it's a story I still tell uh, today. Cause it was, it was symbolic. Um, uh, I think I was with uh, our, our DIA friend and we had just landed. It was late at night. But there was some trouble getting in because uh, all the dust had rolled in to that particular base. And I remember 
as we got there, there was a huge explosion outside one of the gates. But the the explosion aside, yep. the, the the lesson that I remember hearing about that was, um, you know, the base was under under attack. Um, whenever all the the dust came in, it just sort of made it more difficult. But um, there were not a lot of air assets up and we had gotten in just at the last moment to, to land, I think is what I recall, but somewhere out of middle of nowhere, Charlie, this is how the, the, we learned that night and that, that massive explosion outside that gate, um, as the base was getting attacked was because somebody was able to risk their lives to come in through all that air and basically drop a huge, I forget what it was back then. Uh, bunker buster, 5,000 pounds, something outside that gate, wherever the mm-hmm. enemy was. Mm-hmm. And, but, but the most important thing about that is after they dropped that, it was quiet for the rest of the night. And, uh, you know, that to me, that is just symbolic about, you know, standing up to bullies or danger or all these circumstances that yes, you know, when I, I talk to my kids or, or others that we go through these things Thank God there's an angel out there or somebody. But once you stand up against evil hard and put it in its place, you know, peace does come. And had it not come, who knows what would have happened, you know, throughout that night. And that was just a learning experience for me very young in my career as a young junior LT with no being in a combat zone to experience that. But to see how the the joint atmosphere worked and the lesson learned uh, from that to me has just been one one of the pillars for me that I will never, ever forget. And I don't know who that pilot was. None of us do. He probably went home. He probably didn't even know how good of a job he did, but just from being quiet for the rest of the night was, was the most remembrance for me for that. And going back, I I remember that event. And some, there's definitely something to be said for a clarifying, clarifying act of violence every once in a while. It's like, Hey, we all understand where we all, we all stand now because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, Paul, after you got done with the military or maybe while you were in, you started running for office. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I did. So I got involved with the Combat Vets for Congress. Uh, they help veterans get elected. Uh, military veterans and issues was a huge uh, benefit uh, for me having been there. Uh, moved back home, Southern California, got involved, worked on a lot of campaigns. Uh, back then, I worked on presidential campaigns. I ran for office, became the Republican nominee twice uh, for congressional seat. Moved out to Texas about seven years ago with my family, uh, North Texas, largely just for a better quality of life. Uh, we could afford a home out here. We couldn't afford one necessarily out in California. And I got involved out here in politics, um, ran for Texas state representative for the first time as a Texas candidate, made it to the runoff. And uh, didn't quite make it uh, past the runoff, but made it through the runoff and just a great experience, uh, you know, there as well. So here I am now, 49, Charlie, you know, retired, four kids, three teenagers. Uh, You know, politics will always be part of me, but so will the military. And I think, you know, when we look at all those that, that, that serve, especially after World War II, the greatest generation, we had so many military veterans that were serving, not just in Congress, but in state office and the local office. And what I encourage everybody to do is, you know, don't just hang up your hat when you leave military service. There's so many other ways to serve, whether it is an elected, appointed position, volunteer, and Charlie doing exactly what you're doing, taking your service into law enforcement today, which is what we need. And so 
I'd encourage many people to follow your footsteps. Obviously, I retired as a reserve deputy as well with 21 years. But to do that because our country needs you, our community needs you, and you're taking that real-life experience in the military, it's an easy transition into law enforcement. So please, uh, folks, look up your local police or sheriff's department and ask how you can become involved. Go through an academy and become a reserve officer or reserve deputy. So you were talking about the reserve officer deputy program. One of the classmates in my academy class, his name was Chris, works closely with veterans issues. I'm not going to go in his background in the interest of privacy, but I have a lot of respect for the guy. And he made the observation, same mud, same blood, meaning that, you know, if we occupy the same space, that you're my brothers and sisters. Did you feel the same way about your your fellow service members in the Reserve Deputy Sheriff Program? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, here's one more big strength from uh, the last 20 years in the military is we've become much more acceptable, understanding and open about um, the mental issues of what we face. And, and I say this very boldly. And I'll, I said this at my Navy retirement ceremony in front of everybody. I said, look, we are all broken. Every single one of us is broken. It is impossible for our minds to be able to take on all of these different stressors of multiple different experiences Right. I mean, it's so hard just for kids to be able to. I mean, anxiety with kids today is out of control because of social media that going into the fields of what we go into. We bring into an understanding now of where the Vietnam era era veterans were basically crapped on. They were looked down upon where we we got an opportunity to turn this to say, look, in law enforcement, military, we see we do. We experience things that that's not normal. You know, uh, in law enforcement, I had somebody take their lives right in front of me. And that's not normal. And that will impact you. And you can never say that that doesn't. And what you'll find in the locker room talks, and I found this being in the reserves, just opening up to others, is we all deal with these things. And we know the high suicide rate right now, uh, It's a lot of it's connected to the mental health. But the the, the challenge is, is breaking out of this uh, strong, quote unquote, man mentality that, oh, I'm fine. No, folks, you're not. Uh, and, and honestly, you shouldn't be. You've got to come into these jobs knowing that everybody on your left or right has experienced something, experienced something different, but you're also building in this personal sense of resiliency. And sharing those stories with others around you actually builds you as a team, because in law enforcement, think about this, um, the active shooter, you saw the video, if you haven't yet looked at the video in Tennessee of these officers that roll into the scene. It is unnatural to run towards fear, but we do it in the military and law enforcement. When you get out of that, guess what? You're going to have to have a mental rest and talk about what you went through because you're going to have memories, nightmares, experiences. And the more we do to talk about it, the better we are because the better we realize we are all experiencing trauma maybe in different ways, but we can relate to it and make each other stronger, healthier, and survive through these times that we have in front of us. That's right. And one of my previous guests made the observation that if anyone's going to save us, it's us. So I think that that squarely aligns with what he said in my own experiences. And I think you're absolutely right when you talk about the importance of sharing stories. There's so much therapeutic benefit and benefit to the next generation. 
And and I'm, that's one of the reasons I'm glad that you agreed to come on the show. I mean, we, we've been friends for a long time, so I, kn- I knew you'd do it regardless. But thank you for for doing that and being willing to talk about these experiences. And I also want to talk a little bit more about what you're doing now and what your plans are for the future. So I understand you're involved in conservative move and military vet move. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think that's a fascinating thing for vets. Yeah. So, you know, you can transition your military skills into almost anything, right? I mean, in the military, you learn to work with very little and work with very different personalities. And it is, uh, you can translate that. So uh, I'm part of the uh, veteran boot camp for small businesses. I was just in Dallas. So let me give you all some plugs. If you're going to start a small business, you want to be an entrepreneur, do it. DAV, Disabled American Veterans. I just came back from their headquarters two weeks ago. And uh, they'll put you through a whole course, introduce you to angel donors, how to uh, write a business plan. I was sitting right next to the CEO for Honey Baked Ham and him and I chat all the time now. It's really neat. In Dallas last week, I was with thousands of veterans around the country for an event that was fully paid for uh, through Syracuse University Entrepreneurial Bootcamp for Veterans with Disabilities to train you how to become business owners. And it's remarkable. If you're a veteran, you have a higher probability of succeeding as a small business owner. 99% of the entire economy of our country of businesses are small business owners. So um, I'm heavily involved in real estate. I'll chat with you briefly about Military Vet Move, militaryvetmove.com. We help veterans move to areas around the country that best match their needs. On our website, a veteran can go there. There's 21 questions that they'll answer. Very simple ones. Do you need to be near... Uh, a, a base, a commissary, a VA hospital. You want to be next to an American Legion, a VFW. Are you looking for disability benefits, tax benefits? We help veterans uh, answer those questions, comes back to us. Our then uh, uh, team reviews it and then recommends states or regions in the country about where to move to with military vet move. It's, it's a neat uh, enterprise. If you're a real estate agent anywhere in the country, link up. We'd love to add you into our network at militaryvetmove.com. Also, about a month ago, I started what's called uh, McKinney Veterans Coalition. Uh, Look, we lost our DAV chapter out here in Collin County. We didn't really have a lot going on for veterans, yet we got tons of veterans. So if you don't have a veteran network in your community, you can create one. Our Facebook group, it's just called uh, McKinney Veterans Coalition. And we grew to over 300. We had our first event at a cafe. We had Vietnam, World War II, Iraq, Afghanistan, everybody there coming together. And what was really neat about that was seeing all these veterans who don't talk about their experience with the civilians, but doing it amongst everybody. So if you're a veteran living in an area where you don't have or feel like you got a good support network, take your leadership skills and just start one on Facebook and throw out an event. So we're going to meet this coffee place and you'll be surprised. People are going to show up and you can build something really neat uh, in your community. And those are the things that I'm heavily involved in with veterans across this board and obviously raising my kids and uh, doing the best I can there. That's where I need the most prayers. <laughs> well, Paul, where do you see yourself in the future? You've done so much. You're involved in so many things. Five, 10 years down the road, what do you see yourself doing? I play the lottery every Wednesday. And if I win that, you'll probably never hear from me again. <laughs> Charlie you know Fade, who never heard of her? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I just hit 49, Charlie, and uh, I don't feel 49 inside. You know, I uh, I, I don't know. I, I th- what, what I do know is research says you should never stop working or volunteering, because if you do, you're going to die quicker. So, you know, I, I, I don't know what the future brings, but right now I'm enjoying this. Uh, opportunity to to be a dad 
watch my kids go through these phases in life. And um, I, I teach, you know, I teach at Cal Baptist University online to doctoral students. I enjoy doing that for the next generation. Uh, we'll, we'll see. I have no idea. I always put it in God's hands. Uh, he's taken me to some remarkable places. And, uh, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, you know, whatever job God's given you, do it to the best of your ability. If it's to be a, st a street sweeper, you do that to the best of your ability. So who am I to say where I'm going to be? I'm just going to keep my feet moving. And uh, hopefully I'll get a chance to join you back here again and share some new stories. Hey, I would love to have you back. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Paul. And it was a pleasure to serve with you in Iraq. We did a lot of good work for the country over there. And sometimes I miss it, but sometimes I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad we're not doing it anymore. Uh, we talked about Ewan and Andy. I also wanted to give a, a shout out to our comrades that were there with us, Rich and Rich and, and Chris and Luke and so many others that, uh, that I'm not going to go down the list. But I thank you so much for being on and look forward to hearing more about what you're into and having you back on the show. Hey, Charlie, thanks, my friend. And thanks for your leadership in Iraq. You allowed me to grow, to take on some difficult opportunities out there. And last, I don't know if you know, but uh, uh, the last uh, a unit, quote unquote, that we were a part of, um, uh, declass officially declassified a document that I wrote that allowed me to create a strategy published now, which you can find online. Uh, it's an unclassified uh, version on uh, tearing apart terror networks. So because of you giving me that opportunity to do a specific unique um, subset of an assignment at three o'clock in the morning out there. Uh, it allowed me to really uh, grow with something neat that helped me write a book and helped me teach. And today I do a lot of teaching about how to dismantle um, drug cartel networks based on learnings in Iraq, which I would never would have had the opportunity to do had you not said, okay, sure, you're a junior LT, run with it. Let's see what you got. So thank you, Charlie, for giving me that chance. Hey, my pleasure, brother. And I, I did not realize that had been declassified. I remember yeah. when you did that project. Yeah. So I'll, I'll look it up and I'll drop a link to it in the show notes. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, Small, World's, Small World World Journal popped on it and then WikiLeaks stole a copy of it as well. So yeah, <laughs> crazy, huh? Yeah, amazing how that works out. All yeah. right, Paul. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of Battlefields. Many thanks to my friend and fellow Iraq war veteran Paul Chabot, our editor Michael Neal, our sponsors, the Epoch Times and the Havoc Journal, and most importantly you, our listeners. Until next time, God bless and good hunting on your own battlefields.